we think stable coins is going to be the third rail after bank money, credit, debit card money, that everybody in the future will have a wallet, either custodial or non-custodial, and a stable coin, including and especially a U.S. dollar stable coin, would and should be something that everybody has access to. And so whether you're a payor or a payee, a sender or receiver, it's just really simple. This is a rail that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The marginal cost of a transaction is near zero. It, it, it seems like magic money. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Yaka Talks. Today, uh, we're going to catch up with Hard Yaka co-founder Greg Kidd. Um, Greg, you've been traveling quite a bit, but uh, why don't we start with the topic of market conditions? I, it's on everyone's mind. Um, you you have a portfolio of hundreds of companies. What's, what's your take on the situation right now? Well, <clears throat> market conditions are definitely bad, choppy, or worse. Uh, Every, every asset, risk assets, pretty much all assets are down. Maybe real estate hasn't been affected yet, but even their interest rates are up. But unless you've invested in, in oil or certain other commodities, almost every risk class, including <clears throat> cryptocurrency, is under pressure. So um, it looks like, I believe today, I just saw that the stock markets have entered bear territory. <clears throat> Clearly, crypto and anything crypto-related, whether in the public or private market, <clears throat> has been in the tank for some time, and it's still looking really, really uncertain out there. Um, you, you know, you you've been through quite a few cycles yourself. Or what, what sort of advice would you give to you know founders or or other investors? Well, it, it's a hunker down time. So you've got to make whatever funds you've already raised last as long as they can. There is going to be a time for, for cutbacks to basically focusing on just core activities. So we've gone from a very opportunistic mode that was in place, say, back in November of last year to a hunkered, hunkered down mode. Um, and just based on prior experience with, with crypto winters and whatnot, I think, or dot-com crashes or financial meltdowns, I Folks are not expecting this to be some sort of quick V-shaped downturn. They're kind of buckling in for a couple of years of perhaps lean times. So that's that's the reality we're dealing with now. For the last couple of decades, we, we've been dealing with this sort of low inflation, uh, low interest rate in, in environment. It, it feels like things are shifting a little bit this time around. And how do you see it um, in terms of how this this cycle might contrast from from what we've seen previously. Well, the if you will, the the macro conditions are different. Now we're actually after a very very long period of of low inflation, or even in some countries deflation, uh, we have a kind of a couple of events that have come together that that make this really different. One is that the way both Europe and the U.S. and other countries got out of the COVID situation financially was they just printed a lot of money. And then on top of that, because of COVID, there were a lot of supply chain challenges. So if you take a lot more money running around with supply chain problems, and then on top of that, you've got a, a tight labor market. I mean, we put a lot of restraints on um, like immigration and whatnot. 
and um, a number of people have just permanently left the labor force. You've got a shortage of labor, a shortage of <clears throat> critical parts and infrastructure to bring those parts to the country. You've got also a war on that's putting a constraint on using access to easy oil and other commodities coming from Russia. And then you've got the, the overhang of COVID payments. Boy, if you didn't have inflation from that combination of events, I, I would think inflation as a thing doesn't exist. But that does suggest that there's going to be inflation, not as just some sort of temporary flash in the pan, as the Fed was saying early on, but we're going to be facing inflationary challenges now for, for some time. It, it does feel like a bit of a new normal. You, you, you've been doing some traveling recently. You were out over in the EU. Um, you went to Brussels and met met with some top regulators and policymakers there. Um, what was the purpose of of your visit, and and what did you learn? Well, we went to see what the the, the tone and the mood was. If there's going to be overall legislation from the EU that covers uh, crypto and blockchain. Up till now, there really hasn't been overall EU legislation regulating crypto, and it's left banks there out of the loop. They haven't generally been willing to like hold crypto or custody it, um, and it's, it's really been living out in the wild. And so the question is, what is the first true comprehensive crypto legislation going to look like coming out of Europe? And is it going to cover just custodial wallets, or will it cover non-custodial wallets too? question was, how is that affected or changed by the, really, the, the, the war between Russia and the Ukraine has created additional scrutiny on whether sanctions evasion will happen through crypto, either through custodial wallets or even non-custodial wallets. And so there's uh, a lot of talk going on around um, extending um, the scope of what regulators look at from the custodial world to even the non-custodial world. And the reason that's important would be it would be a precedent where um, you're going to actually be regulating not licensed entities, historically money transmitters or, or other custodians, but that there might actually be regulation on vast virtual asset service providers, which are folks that are just creating software. And what that's saying is we like regulating a browser company like Google Chrome or Firefox for what happens uh, in a underneath the pages you're looking at because you'd be regulating someone who's basically building a viewer of custodial assets. It might hold keys, like hold passwords, just like Google Chrome might hold or remember a password. And because that password is a password maybe to a site that law enforcement or regulators don't like, they're, they're thinking of actually regulating your browser because, because with that remembered password, you'd be able to go to a site that is deemed, you know, unlawful by um, by the regulators. And so that's a new level of regulation that's never happened really anywhere in the world. And Europe might be the first place to, to drop the hammer and, and start to regulate that type of activity. So we want to go and see if that's the way they're leaning and, and why they're leaning that way and, and what they're thinking about decentralization in general. So they're trying to get their head around how to regulate decentralized activity. And in particular, if it's decentralized, like, what do you do if members of that decentralized operation aren't in Europe? How do you regulate parties that are doing things that affect Europeans, but they don't actually live in or operate 
uh, in Europe and are unaware that they're even servicing European customers. I, I, I guess traditionally Europe has sort of taken this top-down um, centralized approach to, to regulation. Um, how, how prepared do you think they are in, in terms of um, adjusting their approach to, to take on these more decentralized services and products? Well, the Europeans are still, they have a very much a top-down mentality. So does China. And for the time being, the U.S. is pretty damn top-down as well. Um, so they're continuing to think in a very top-down way. I, 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 my personal opinion is that they think decentralization uh, is kind of like just a buzzword. And they're pretty sure that they can find somebody to put the hammer on um, and somebody's operating those nodes and somebody's like, you know, writing that software. And, and their point of view is, you know, decentralization is just kind of a word. And I think that, you know, like when you ask them questions that actually animate the question of, of, of decentralization or jurisdiction, like, like if they say, well, we're going to do this for everybody who's a European resident. And you ask a question like, well, you know, if I, an American buy a, you know, a flat in Portugal, which then issues me like residency credentials. Am I a resident of Europe now, or am I still a resident of the United States and citizen? And if there's two different laws, one's from Europe and one's from the US, which one applies? Or are you saying like both laws apply at the same time? And if the US tells me to do one thing and Europe tells me to do the opposite, how do you tell whose law to follow? Or if a European gets off a cruise boat in the Bahamas and, and, and gets a sand dollar in the Bahamas, does that give Europe the ability to tell the Bahamas how to run, you know, its business and a Bahamian licensed company is going to get, you know, basically busted for servicing a European. So, so this concept of extraterritoriality is, you know, I don't think it's very well understood. I mean, they're looking at this just like they passed GDPR and they can sue American companies because they don't like the way the American company handles the data of a European. Well, if you're going to start going down that route and every country can sue companies in every other country because they don't like the way their citizens are treated, I, you know, I don't know how that's going to work. Like the Americans cowboy it and think, well, we can get away with this and we can tell every other country how to treat Americans. But it sure doesn't work the other way around. Like if an American is being serviced by a Chinese company, um, or, or a Chinese person is being serviced by an American company, we don't let the Chinese law come and tell us what to do. But you know, this, this one-way streetism, which came from America, is now being aped by the Europeans. I don't know how that works. It's just a, it's just a Mad Max world of regulation. And right now, it does seem the Europeans are looking to go down that route um, and treat crypto the same way they treated GDPR, which is that they can just project that power really anywhere in the world that touches a European. Well, so it's, it sounds like that the EU is being proactive on, on this front, but there's still quite a few details to be ironed out. Um, I, you mentioned GDPR. Now, now we have the D Digital Markets Act, which looks like, you know, they're, they're trying to push interoperability on, on big tech. Um, it seems that when the EU does regulate, it, it seems to have this global influence. Do you suspect the same to happen with crypto? 
it's looking that way. I, I, I think you know the devil's going to be in the details, and um, it, it's it's not final legislation yet. But this basic concept of you know if you're servicing a European, whatever that might be described, European citizen, pretty clear, but a European resident. And, and where you're servicing them, I, I, I do believe they think they can tell you what to do and overrule the regulation that might be set forth in those other countries. The legislation draft I saw was particularly, they didn't use the word shithole countries, but basically they felt like they could just go right over the top of countries like the Bahamas or Dubai or Singapore, places where they're coming up with regulatory regimes Clearly not just to service people in the Bahamas, just in Dubai, just in Singapore. Those are all small countries servicing populations on a global basis and viewing the world in globalized terms. And yet the, I, I think that the, the attitude the Europeans are taking is that those are uh, sunny places to do shady business and we're not going to really respect the sovereignty of that regulation. Well, certainly one to watch. <clears throat> Changing gears a little bit, you, you just got back from Austin uh, from Coindex, Coindesk's consensus conference. Um, how did that go? You know, especially with the sort of new economic conditions, you know, we're in a down cycle. It's crypto winter now. Uh, what was the vibe there? Uh, what did you learn? Well, the market is clearly down, but the people at the conference were the ones that I think have a pretty healthy view that, you know, They've been to the rodeo before. We've seen a crypto winner back in 2018. And these are the folks that are committed to the, to the disruptive powers of the blockchain technology and the uses of crypto and stable coins and NFTs. And they're in it for the long haul. So they're viewing this, this downturn as a sort of a washout for the, the fear weather sailors in this space. They know there's going to be like less money being sloshed around um, and everybody's going to have to buckle buckle down and focus on fewer things um and the energy though was i thought really good and the topics being tackled were really real and like 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 who should issue stable coins and how should nfts be treated are they you know are they a security are they something else are they always a security are they never a security like the right questions were being uh, asked there were representatives there from the regulatory uh, community. Um, everybody was well represented there. And, and, and I thought it was a terrific speakers list. It's my first time to consensus, but uh, you know, I, I thought it was good value for money. Were there any specific panels that stuck out to you? There were a couple. I, I liked one in particular on, on who should issue stable coins. And they had a representative, a chap that by the last name of Gray, who's testified in Congress before, and he just totally anti-private sector for anything to do with stable coins and thought that the government should issue all the stable coins. And if you needed on-off ramps, it could be like the post office. And you know, he was actually quite persuasive and articulate and a bit of a luddite, but, but in a very reasoned way. We had a representative from Circle who's behind USDC and thinks like that what they're doing is just hot stuff and you know they've really done well especially in the wake of the collapse of luna and ust and sort of the shakes of uh shakes of us uh, usdt tether basically they've been gaining share and kicking ass and then we had a representative 
uh, from, from Wyoming, speaking for the concept that banks or other regulated entities like credit unions could and should be issuing a stablecoin that's regulated, it's insured, it's capital efficient, it's compliant. And so those were three different views, banks issuing, money transmitters issuing, and governments issuing. And the three went at it in a very you know, wholehearted way. And I think it was educational for everyone in the audience, including me. I, I, I know that you've been thinking more deeply about stable coins recently. What, what would your take be? What, do you have a position? Well, we, we think stable coins is going to be the third rail after bank money, credit, debit card money, that everybody in the future will have a wallet, either custodial or non-custodial, and a stable coin, including, and especially a U.S. dollar stable coin, would and should be something that everybody has access to. And so whether you're a payor or a payee, a sender or receiver, it's just really simple. This is a rail that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The marginal cost of a transaction is near zero. It, it, it seems like magic money. And the only question is, how do you come up with a stable coin that's trusted and safe <laughs> and with proper privacy protections? And clearly, UST was something that, like, you know, I, I, I never could quite understand it. We, we didn't have any exposure to it. It worked till it didn't. And then it, it failed pretty spectacularly. I think there's a feeling that Tether even if they have enough assets on hand to pay back all the obligations, it's not clear that those assets are liquid and that they could pay back redemptions in short notice. And that's why sometimes the, the, the peg on Tether or the dollar sometimes breaks. USDC, clearly more trusted, but it's not a particularly capital efficient way of, of, of backing the coin. You put in a dollar, they have to keep a dollar there. Um, I mean, banks have an eight to one capital efficiency ratio over money transmitters like Coinbase and Circle. So it does beg the question of if you're really going to like push stable coins big time. And I don't mean the, you know, tens of billions of dollars that are outstanding today, but like trillions of dollars. Wouldn't that be better if it came from a, a regulated and insured institution? And if it did come from a regulated and insured institution, that insurance was from the government what would really be the role of a central bank digital currency? Because if you have a privately issued currency that is government guaranteed, I, I don't know what the incremental advantage is of having a government issued uh, digital currency. Like it, its utility doesn't seem to be any higher than, than doing something from a private but regulated and insured version of that. And so uh, you know, we're excited that uh, stablecoins is like a killer app going forward. And I look forward to the day when everybody, you know, everybody can accept and receive and just doesn't think of stable coins as anything different than like, oh, well, I have money in a savings account, a checking account, a certificate of deposit and a stable coin. It's just another container for money, but one that works ubiquitously around the world and operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week at a lower cost to those other alternatives. So, so to us, it's just a question of when that's going to happen. Um, and who's going to be in the game? Uh, but we 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 definitely see that 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 market is already proven, and now it's just a question of uptake. The, the, the capital efficiency question is a big one, right? Because I, I I think the Fed has published some research, and they've been looking at the systemic risks of stable coins. And when you do have this one to one collateralization, um, it has this possibility to suck out liquidity from from the system and maybe from bank deposits. Right. If everybody moved from having just like 
boring bank deposits to having stable coins, that would be like a huge contraction of the money supply available for growth of businesses. Because a bank can take $1 of deposits today and hypothecate and create $8 of loans. And, and that's really been the difference between a bank and any other corporate institution in the world is they are legally allowed to, to basically operate a fractional banking system, which creates credit. And to have a society that has no credit, it's kind of like going back to the Stone Age. And so um, a, a, a successful Federal Reserve central bank digital currency would essentially be competing with the fractional banking system. And the success of that, that, that central bank digital currency would essentially be the the disaster or an attack on the fractional banking system and fraction and and that's you know where does that get you uh, and so if you could do it and have something as good as a central bank digital currency without destroying the fractional banking system that seems like the best of all worlds well well it's great that these conversations are being happened or, or you know are are happening in in a very balanced way in particular you know this is a very crypto centric conference um but uh, clearly, everyone's thinking about the big picture, so that's that's great. Um, any final thoughts? Well, the other thing I would say was a lot of consensus was on really positive uses of NFTs, and and my imagination was stretched. I saw great uses of NFTs as like like tickets to a concert, where I hadn't really thought about this before. Like the ticket actually had like some live video of of the concert performers and then the ticket would go on and be valuable after the concert you might get like a recording of the concert that would be part of the ticket thereafter and all sorts of other benefits i saw like nfts being used to like issue things like rewards like upgrades of seats that when you're like flying instead of just having bonus points you actually get in your you know in your in your wallet, you have a bunch of like upgrades and things. But I, I saw many, many use cases for NFTs, um, really NFTing everything up and, and lots of practical, practical use cases for that. So in addition to kind of like revving up about, um, revving up about stable coins, I thought there was a lot of healthy ideating around NFTs as well. So I, I put that out there too. Well, I, I think that is sort of the silver lining of these downturns where, you know, without all the frothiness, you get a lot more focus on, on real use cases and, and building real value. Absolutely. Well, well thank you, Greg, for your time. And uh, we'll catch you all in the next one. Very good. Thanks for your time too, Alec.